Uh, when I said, okay, you say it's not safe for me, but then why am I not dead? And he said, well, intelligence is a bit of a misnomer. We're not very clever and we're kind of slow. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. Um, we're going to be chatting with Jeffrey Gilson a little bit later about his book, Maggie's Hammer, and um, how he was trying to hunt down his uh, best friend's murderer. So that it's it really does play out just like a spy novel. And we got our good buddy from Florida, Adam Loyal, joining us. But first, as always, the lucid creeper himself, Graham Dunlop. How's uh, it going, buddy? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with creeping. You, you like that? <laughs> There's That's nothing the wrong with creeping like. in a lucid dream. The lucid part. I'm having troubles with lucidity lately, so I was hoping to, we're trying to, I'm trying to get a hold of this guy in the UK who's done some dream research and all that. Maybe if you just abstain from orgasming for a couple of weeks, then you can like wet dream your way into lucid. How'd you know I've been doing that too? Oh, have you? Yeah. Kind <laughs> of boy. Yeah. Went to this Tantra-esque workshop. It's not good for your prostate. No, it's it's okay if uh, we it? we have cycles too apparently, and so oh, it's all about we're addicted to ejaculation in our culture, and uh, so I was <laughs> like you know trying to learn how to orgasm while ejaculating. Oh really? Yeah. How's that going for you? It's okay. <laughs> you get a lot of blue balls doing something like no, that. No, I think blue balls is a myth. No, it's not yeah. a fucking myth. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Sorry, Adam, to start out like this. I think that's the most... All the shit you believe, and you don't believe in blue balls. You are fucking kidding me. Wow. What do you think, Adam? Do you believe in blue balls? I I believe in blue balls, yeah. Perfect. <sighs> I like that you're here to validate. I'm a little honest. skeptical about uh, Bigfoot, but blue balls, yes. I think that's like scientifically proven and shit. No, it's not, man. It's just you don't need to ejaculate. It's not a thing. Like you don't need to do that to release. It just it's just well, a, you don't need to. But if you're gonna like, that's like filling a water balloon up with water, like right till it's about to burst, and then just tying it off and just leaving it. No, no I'm thinking the balloon's just gonna go back to feeling normal. What is it? Just gonna seep back in? Just seeps back down? I don't even want to talk about this. Anymore. I'm grossing myself out. <laughs> so I'm glad we have Adam here because we uh, we didn't get to see him this year in Minnesota. So I thought we'd catch up. Uh, he's been, you know, thanks for listening. <coughs> thanks for listening to the show, Adam, and uh, it's just good to have you on for a little chat. Yeah, nice here too. Yeah, how you been? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I was hoping to see you guys this year too, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah, maybe we'll find some other venue or some other place where we can meet in person. Find an excuse to come to Florida. Yeah, are you whereabouts are you in Florida? Uh, Palm Beach, West Palm. Nice. Oh. How far is that from Cape Canaveral? Uh, pretty far. Um, to put it in perspective, about halfway between Lake Okeechobee and Miami. That does not put it in any perspective. <laughs> <laughs> How how well? How is this? If I, if I if I drive about an hour and a half, I can get to Miami. And then it'll no, be that's in, not bad at all. So how far to drive to Cape Canaveral? Oh, actually, I've never gone. I'd have to look that up. Yeah, oh. I haven't been there since I've been a teenager, so I don't know. 
like long for us is we drove 24 hours or 23 hours to Minneapolis. That was a long drive. 22. 22. Well, it would have been 22 if we didn't have to turn around for gas. No, it would have been 20. So Adam, we might as well get right into it because you said you're skeptical of the Sasquatch. So there's an ongoing debate in Grimerica and I've got even a t-shirt made up to, uh, to clarify my position in the debate that if you saw a Sasquatch and you had a gun and you shoot him. I like how the guy who gets the t-shirts made gets to decide whether with, that we only get his shirts made. <laughs> I, I would not shoot Bigfoot for all the classic reasons. But I have often wondered, as many have, if Bigfoot hasn't been shot already. <laughs> right. And been shot already and, uh, and, and killed or just shot and wounded or... Well, or, but you know, like if if I shot Bigfoot, and we're having the discussion of how you know real it is. If it turns out it's incredibly human-like, I might be worried that I'm going to get arrested for murder. So I can imagine people shooting Bigfoot and then just not talk. What if you is it is it better if you eat them? Oh, Darren, fuck! <laughs> I think it's That's even like better. That's like fucking if cannibalism. You Bigfoot, you make a shrunken head out of his skull. <laughs> If you use every part of the Sasquatch, then it's okay. Yeah, you, can, you can have a keychain when you're done with it. I don't even, I think that's even just bad talking about it. That's like bad vibes right now. You think so? Big, yeah. I just, like I just fucked your chances of ever seeing a Sasquatch. The astral Bigfoot are like listening somewhere to us right now. They just, they just put you on the do not see list. <laughs> now you can never see a Bigfoot because they think that you might. Or maybe they'd show me. They'll show me. <laughs> can I can I uh, read some feedback? Because it, it has a, to do with the Bigfoot shirts. Can I play a jingle? Sure, if you want. Well, what kind of feedback is it? It's about the show and uh, the t-shirts. And that's it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have a jingle for that. How about this? I'm a rambling with so he says, uh, hey, Graham, this is from Jed. He says, been a long time listener. I think it's time to show show some love and get some cool swag. We'll make this short. What do I need to do to get a shirt? $50, 60 $70 or more via PayPal to get one Grimerica, one large Grimerica T-shirt and one large Bigfoot T-shirt sent to me here at my beautiful suburban Buffalo, New York home. And he says, love what you guys are doing. I've been listening to Red Ice, No Agenda, Sea Realm, MU and the like for about eight years now. And I can tell you, you and Darren have created a show that stands tall and proud with these legends of alternative podcasting. Keep up the stellar work. So, wow. Thank you for the amazing feedback. That's crazy to me. Yeah, that is pretty humbling. I don't know if I necessarily agree, but... <laughs> That's okay. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and about the t-shirts, uh, we, we're, we don't have a lot. We're, we're getting some made. Um, and there is a Save the Sasquatch t-shirts and then there's the Grimerica Show t-shirts. So we're figuring like a donation of probably 25 or 30 bucks would get you a t-shirt because it's really just, co it's costing us around 20 or a little bit more by the time we ship it down south. So yeah. Yeah. So, so is that good with you, Darren? Or what? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so you can, so we've had a few people request them and I'm sort of, sort of keeping tabs, trying to keep tabs on who wants them and then, uh, they should be ready in about a week or two. Okay. Perfect. I like it. And then if you want uh, a take the shot shirt, just let Graham know. And then maybe next time he'll be courteous enough to think of us realists. I don't know if I want to make take the shot 
It's like shooting Bigfoot. Then you're ostracizing half of our audience. I don't think half would take the shot, Darren. (laughs) 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 Don't stop believing. I think 60% would take the shot. I don't know. It'd be interesting to have a poll, but I don't really want to I can do a poll. Yeah. I think. I don't know. How. What do you what do you think, Adam? I I I don't know. I guess it depends on how people uh view animals, you know. Yeah, I think you I think you're right. People that people that hunt for fun wouldn't have for a problem. fun. Nobody hunts for fun. Well, I guess they do. <laughs> so Adam, um so what what like you've listened a little bit here and you've you know, you're interested in all this stuff. We've seen you for a few years at conferences and all that. What what kind of stuff do you think we should cover? Do you have any ideas about topics we should do? No, actually, I actually really enjoy the show as it is. I mean, the the most interesting thing to me is just talking to people yeah. about who they are. You know, it's just ah. shooting the shit with, you know, it, it doesn't even matter that they're famous. It's just that they're interesting. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it just happens to be that a lot of the guests that you have on, you know, aside from having something else to talk about are really interesting. Yeah, that's kind of it's funny that you mentioned that, because I feel like sometimes I go down this this path of questioning or, or interest that I always want to know about what them and like what's affected them and how they've changed on. I feel like I keep going back to that more, even more so than the research. Sometimes it's almost it's like the people part of it is what I well, like. Well, yeah, because like when I listen to podcasts, you know, the benefit that I've gotten, the, you know, the, the moments of growth, the things that have impacted me have come from just, you know, genuine, honest conversations with people, you know, about things. So, I mean, that that it's valuable to me. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it shows through with people that are having like some of the podcasts I listen to as well. It, it really is boiling down to those people that have honest conversations. Yeah, especially. Yeah. Considering that, you know, you and I, we all know, you know, there's so many things that we don't talk about that we really all just should talk about because we're all doing it and thinking it, you know, and it's just really bad when we don't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, podcasts, I think are really, you know, starting to help people kind of understand that, you know, you can just talk about those things and. Yeah. yeah. It's like everyone can find a community. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, and without, without uh, censorship and without uh, agendas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we really don't need to, to worry about what we say on here. We really don't need to, we can just, we can offend a bunch of people if we want, but we obviously we don't want to do that, but we don't have to cater to anybody's, you know, to whims. So that's, I think that's important. There you go. You know what I think is important? Oh, Oh, here I was having, I had the listeners uh, UFO experience in my hands, but I'll I'll play the UFO quote of the week for you, Darren. Last week it wasn't a UFO quote. I know, but I just... (sighs) So there's... (laughs) There are some definite flight type characteristics that are seen now that I would say represent genuine UFOs, i.e. instant acceleration, instant stop, vertical acceleration up into the air and down to the ground, reverses in direction, right angle turns, all in silence, multiple objects, sometimes separating and then going back into each other. They are classic, what I would call, genuine UFO characteristics. Things we cannot do in a conventional sense. Now this is the British detective, Constable Gary Heseltine. Police, uh, police, 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 UFO. police, don't stop. 
Police UFO Reporting Organization, Proofos. Uh, we should have Gary on one day, actually. He's 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 a fascinating dude. I've I've seen him at a conference before, and and he's done a whole bunch of research with with cop sightings. And uh, anyways, the CX police officer himself. <laughs> he is, yeah. He did. I, I did that for Jeffrey Gilson because that's a UK. I thought he might uh, appreciate the the uh, what do they call those UK cops? There's a name from Bobby's. Billy's, Bobby's, Billy's. Yeah, Bobby's with Billy clubs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Go get the Bobby. <laughs> there you have it. There you have it. You heard it here first. So I've got a listener uh, profound UFO experience, actually. Do you want to hear this That's one? That's close enough to this. Yeah. American Trip Report. No, wrong one. <laughs> do we not? Do we not have? We don't have like a listener UFO experience jingle yet, right? No. No, we should get the guys in the jingle makers to make one for us. We don't have jingle makers. Yeah, we do. We do. Well, we have five dollar jingle makers. Oh, like the fiver ones. Yeah. Or listeners can send them in. Our best jingles are from listeners for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so this past weekend on September twentieth, my girlfriend and I visited the Mineral Fossil Gem and Jewelry Show in Denver, Colorado. Now, this is something we should go to, Darren. Have fun. <laughs> Actually, that'd be a good excuse to take my wife to Denver. Yeah, that's true. With thousands and thousands of beautiful crystals, stones, geodes, and fossils laid out in front of us, we couldn't help but notice something going on in the sky above the Denver Coliseum. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon, and as our day was going, coming to a close at the show, there was a gathering of people staring up at the sky, and curious folks as we are, decided to see what all the fuss was about. Lo and behold... There was about 20 to 25 unidentified flying objects buzzing above our heads. They seemed to be communicating in some sort of way. They were flying up and down and side to side. I noticed one get closer to another, then go back to its original spot. They stayed at the same elevation, but very high up in the sky. It was really strange. They seemed to be flashing lights like you could only see them when they were lit up, making the sky filled with little blinking lights. My guess is that out of all the crazy amount of crystals and gems that were outside, the UFOs were being reflected onto, onto from the crystals. Hmm. Probably not noticing that they were visible to us down on the ground. This was our first UFO sighting together, and we were there watching for a good 30 minutes before we had to leave, because I was trying to think of a logical explanation of what those were. In the end, I could not. A true identified flying object sighting and grateful to experience it. Love your guys' show. Regular listener, keep it up. Mad love. That's from Tyler. Interesting. Lampirida. They were there to see all the new agey types there. Imagine yeah. how many... What are there? Fireflies. <clears throat> fireflies? <laughs> <laughs> He's just disgusting. <laughs> I think ref like something reflecting off the crystals is better than better explanation than fireflies. I think of drones every time I hear that, but I you know they have those new swarm drones out. Maybe it was like swarm drones. Yeah, I haven't heard of this. Like little bugs that fly around together, and they can tell how far apart they are from each other, so they won't hit each other, and they can fly in swarms. Just like real bugs. Like fly in your in your window and shit like that. Can they so, fuck you up too? Yeah. How? Well, they can they swarm have little you. guns. And what? Bump into you or bite you? <laughs> Have you heard about those things, Adam? No, I haven't. 
Yeah, I don't know if they're like really. I'll take out swarm. I'll take out a fucking swarm of drones, man. (laughs) Set it up. (laughs) Hey, I'll tell you what. I've run into a bug doing about eighty on a motorcycle, and it was no fun. This is true, but I'm not. I don't don't think I want to hit a little steel drone flying through the air. Yeah, exactly. Especially not in the face, man. I almost hit a fucking hawk a couple of weeks ago. Really? Oh Jesus. I was like driving beside my wife and my kids too. We were coming back from the park and I was like on the back road there off 114th by Shepherd. And I was like pulled up beside him and waving. Then I look back forward and there's like a hawk coming out of the ditch from trying to grab something. And it was like, I bet you within fucking two feet of my fucking face. I had to like duck. I ducked out of the way on my motorcycle. Wow. It was intense. I was like, whoa. Mm. I looked over and Lisa's like, wow. Hawk. Holy hawk. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my, that's, that's my hawk story. So Adam, anything else? No. Well, it's good to chat with you. Yeah. Same here, my friend. I mean, been too long. Yeah. If there's anything coming up, like honestly, uh, with conferences or anything you're doing in Florida, let us know. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. I'll keep you guys in touch. I got a couple of things that I'm working on anyways, so I'll uh, I'll hit you up on the back channels and discuss it with you. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. All right, Darren, you want to talk about how to support the show here? Yeah, check out grimerica.ca slash support for all the different options on how to uh, support the show and keep us ad-free, sponsor-free, paywall-free. Just everything's free. Okay. Except, you know, it's not free. Heat in the igloo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, big thanks to Adam, actually, who uh, sent us some love just the other day. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Oh, you're welcome. So, yeah, consider uh, consider supporting the show. It really does help. Um, if you can't afford to support us financially, you can always send in your stories, your experiences, your synchronicities to Graham. Um, review the show, grammarica.ca slash iTunes. You can also review us on Stitcher. And tell your friends about this show is really the biggest way of all. And signing people up for the newsletter at grimerica.ca slash news, you get your broadcast reminders and everything else. And keep your eyes on Facebook, hey Darren, because you're going to start uh, more of a Facebook marketing campaign here, aren't you? I don't know if I'd call it a marketing campaign. I'm just <laughs> keep starting. To, I'm giving control of the Facebook page to the people as opposed to, to some people to some people. Yeah. Not as opposed people. to me and well maybe eventually the people who knows right if i can find a way to maybe do it that just everyone can post to the page i'd consider it i'd so probably only let certain people comment and act as grammarica like uh, adam and a few other select people have the ability to now but right. i mean i'm open to everyone being able to post on the page and it showing up in the feed right okay cool well we'll keep everybody informed about that we don't need people we don't want to be trolls yeah, yeah, that's true. And there's enough paid trolls out there right oh, now. Oh, God, here yeah. we go again. Yeah, there are. We should do a show on paid trolls. <laughs> if you can find an expert. No, I'm serious. <laughs> Fuck, there's people getting paid to troll. I might walk out of here. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that, Adam? Oh, I think it's a great idea. Just, you know, the whole, in the, uh, not even that paid reviews online. That's a huge thing. Oh, okay. That's of actual products, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's people out there that make a living reviewing products online. 
Oh, so that's like so when when so if people that buy like iTunes reviews and shit like that, is that real? Is that real people that are reviewing? Oh, I'm sure or? it is. I, I know it's all over. You know, eBay or not eBay, but like Amazon. You go on and you start looking at the reviews, and you'll see that there's a ton of paid reviews on there. Really? Yeah. So, so is this from people that you think are actually to get the product, or they just paid to review it, like for the? Oh, uh, I know. I know there's services out there that pay you to review product for them. <clears throat> right. So, yeah, I don't think it's a. It, unless it's you know like a verified purchase, and you go and look at the uh, uh, the online reviews for things, and you'll see tons of great reviews for products that are just overwhelmingly positive towards the uh, the manufacturer brand. It just seems a little uh, huh. dishonest, a little too good to be true in a lot of the reviews. Though. No, I, don't know. I wonder if people are these paid corporations would be trying to. Yeah, you're right, Darren. They wouldn't try and put one over on us. <laughs> If people are paid, uh, well, I don't know. If anyone's paying people to review Great America, thanks. We <laughs> 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 don't mind. But uh, instead of paying someone, you can just go review the show yourself. Yeah, right on, buddy. All right. Uh, Jeffrey Gilson, this one reads like a novel. You guys should enjoy it. Uh, it's a fun one. He's a fun, fun cat. We did, This is a late one. Eh? I think it was like we started at like 1230 his time. Yeah. To the wee, the wee hours in the yeah, morning. So thanks for oh, staying that was up a late. bad British accent. Yeah. Thanks for staying up late, Jeffrey. And thanks for staying up late, Adam. Yep. And uh, thank you guys for listening to our ramblings. Enjoy the chat, the chat with Jeffrey, and we will pick you up in the outro. Hey, and thank you guys for the uh, fantastic show. Hey, you're welcome, Adam. Okay, guys, in America tonight, we're going to be chatting with Jeffrey Gilson about his book, uh, Maggie's Hammer, um, which is uh, going to be a fun one. I'm looking forward to it. These are kind of political thrillers that are always uh, a fun chat. Yeah, it's probably going to feel like a bit of a James Bond movie, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I love James Bond. So Yeah, J- Jeff's, uh, Jeff's also a lawyer, and he's he's been in politics for a bit, too, so this could get... Well, we'll try and stay away from the politics. <laughs> and uh, he's written this book called Maggie's Hammer. It's how investigating the mysterious death of my friend uncovered another world of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, and Britain's 30-year secret role as a America's hired gun. So that title kind of gives away some of the, uh, the interesting plots in here. So I won't really say much more about that. Uh, just... Uh, you know, happy to t- talk to you about all this, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Darren uh, and Graham. Um, 
Thank you for having me on Grim America. Grim America. Is that how you called it? That's Grim right. America? Yeah. Love Dar it. Darren's last uh, name is, is Grimes. So uh, his, okay. little, his little world is Grimerica. And, there uh, you go. Yeah. It's not just my little world anymore. Yeah. <laughs> He signed it. I think he signed it after a, a big poker winning one night, and he was probably probably <laughs> half tanked. And he signed his name as Grimerica, and thus the podcast was born. Uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's funny because it really we're hitting on all these topics, and and yours. Um, you know, we we found out about your book and your topics here, and it really fits into some of the stuff that we not only talk about on the show, but we listen to some other podcasts that talk about some some of the kind of deeper political stuff, but I, mm -hmm. I really haven't, um, you know, heard this side of it. So I'm really interested to hear about your, you know, decades of investigation, which I kind of meant to, to say in the intro there and how you kind of came about, uh, writing this book or what made you write the book. Okay. I, I, I'm going to kind of start backwards. Um, I I've done a couple of interviews, and I normally start with the ooh, ooh um, the adventure and the James Bond and where it led. Let, let me end. Let me start with the ending because uh, I just spent the evening watching the Republican debate, uh, three hours of it. I didn't watch all wow. three hours. Sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know, leaving aside the politics of it, whether you're in Britain or in the United States, and I'm a dual dual citizen. I'm both British. An American, I live in North Carolina, I've lived there for 10 years now, been in America for 20. Um, you're, you're hearing the same kind of uh, political rationale, whether it's Democrat or Republican. You have Democrats saying, you know, we need to project our power around the world in order to do good. And this evening, the Republicans are saying we need to project our power around the world in order to show leadership. And, and I was mentioning to you two guys before the show started, I can understand things when they're on a human level. I, I, I'm not the cleverest guy in the world, and I don't understand some of the big issues. And I work now in a grocery co-op in a small town in North Carolina. I've got a couple of friends, and I can see you on video. They look just like you. Great guys. <laughs> and a couple of them have just got married, and a couple of the others are now having kids. And it's it's really weird. It doesn't matter how much you say you're not going to be your parents or your grandparents. When it comes time to raise kids you become your parents because you've just become parents and you start worrying about what the world is going to be like for your kids growing up and that doesn't mean you know what what's happening in china it means blunt things like is my kid going to get drafted into the army when he's 18 and go off to some war i don't support or he doesn't support and when you're watching the republican debate this evening suddenly it becomes very very personal and my story is a very human story and it ends up with the influence in Great Britain and America of the arms industry, um, which I believe is very much driven by the need in both countries for the, in, uh, for the industry to make money and for politicians to make money from kickbacks. Now, that may sound like a hugely unusual subject, but we're, we're having this in Great Britain at the moment. A number of politicians have stood up in Parliament and said, look, does no one get the connection between the fact that Great Britain, a small country, is the number five world's exporter in arms, uh, that those arms sales are selling devastating weaponry to countries in the Middle East, and war there is devastating. There's a flood of refugees turning up on Europe's borders, which is calling, causing all sorts of anxiety in Europe. Do we not see the connection? Do the Americans not see the connection between their selling arms 
in the Middle East and the continuing need to sell arms and the trigger it, it, it provides for armed conflict in the Middle East and the need for American politicians to go on wanting to project American military might around the world. <laughs> so I raise that as a question. That's the sort of big end of where, it, where I end up. And you guys may either agree or not agree. Your listeners may agree or not agree. But where I got to all started with a very human story, um, which is the James Bond aspect. And you can either interject here and ask a question, or I'll just carry on rambling. <laughs> Darren, do you have any questions? Thank you no, for the option. That's yeah, so yeah, nice. Yeah, no, I'd like to uh, get into the James Bond. And... <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So once upon a time. Well, I, w I would uh, like to say one thing first. I, yes. I agree with what you're saying, and I totally understand that it seems to me as, as well, the military industrial complex has to sustain itself. It's not going to stop. And it has to keep, you know, selling arms is obviously a big part of that. So, well, yeah. you know, Graham, I, I'm really something of a cynic. Uh, I used to be a lawyer. I regard myself as a fairly laid-back individual. You, you shout conspiracy theory at me, and I generally turn off. You say you follow that up with military-industrial complex. I kind of shrug my shoulders. That's where I was 20, 30 years ago. But my trail led where it led. If those are the words we use, those are the words we right. use. But the arms industry in both countries exerts an influence I had no clue. And I've had interviews saying, well, that's old hat. It may be old hat, but it's not necessarily something people understand in truly human terms. What does this actually mean for you, for the person living next door? And what does it mean when your best friend turns up dead in a wood? Which, very neatly, <laughs> brings me back to James Bond. Did you notice how that little segue there? Yeah, that, that was <laughs> yeah. good. Actually, before yeah. we pop into that, where, where, where do you think it rates on... Uh on like uh on the economic scale like you know if if say oh, so a country's oil is number one like where's arms in the in the I, I, what would you call it gdp or darren i mean in terms of um i can talk in terms of great britain i don't know about america my trail hasn't taken me totally into america there are aspects of my story which very much involve America, which is one of the reasons I'm here. But I can tell you in terms of, of Great Britain, and again, I can tell you in human terms, um, one in every five person employed in Great Britain is employed in something to do with the arms industry. Wow. Now, that means, for example, if you have a town of 10,000 people and the main industry is a, uh, a factory outside of town making, you know, guns or whatever, then the, the industry, then, the, then the, the town is dependent upon that industry. So people working in the local McDonald's are probably serving people who work in the industry. So it's a bit broad, but basically I've seen the statistic that one in five people employed in Great Britain is associated with the arms industry. And here's the other, another human aspect to that. Trade unions in Great Britain are generally socialist. Um, even the trade unions in Great Britain support the part of the arms industry because it provides jobs for their members. That's how insidious it is. Hmm. Does that answer your question, Darren? Yeah, Did yeah, you... no, that's perfect, yeah. Okay, so I get back to the dead body in the woods. Yes. <laughs> which, is, which is kind of serious. I don't want to be too light about it, but one of the things is, after doing this for 27 years, if you don't have a sense of humor, you will go crazy. Don't... There are people who say I'm crazy anyway, but you'll go even more crazy. So I'm actually, as I say, a very ordinary guy back in the 80s. Um, my friend Hugh Simmons 
about whom the book Maggie's Hammer is written. He and I were working in his law firm. He owned the firm. I was his senior employee in a small town just to the west of London, population 20,000, little market town, just like any other market town in America or Great Britain. Um, we were both trying to get into politics. My politics back then were a bit different to what they are now. Um, now I'm kind of more centre-left than I was then. Um, we were both trying to become members of Parliament, and everything was just ticking along in a normal way until he turned up dead um, in some local woods in a car. Um, it looked like suicide. We'll come back to that. Um, and $7 million was missing from the law firm account to which he was the sole signatory. Um, the police and the Law Society, which is the equivalent of the National Bar Association, spent about a year trying to track down the money, but they didn't do much else as far as as they were concerned, you know, money got stolen, a guy committed suicide, what else is there to talk about? I knew him very well. He was no angel, um, which was part of the problem. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, he was the sort of guy who, if he'd had stolen the money for his own devices and had got caught, he'd have gone on a plane, he'd have gone to Brazil. He wouldn't have hung around. Um, going off to a field and killing himself just didn't add up for me. Um, in addition, he had three young kids, which is the sort of human aspect of the whole story. I had to hold the hands of an 11-year-old girl and try and explain to her why her father had died and not left any kind of note for her. Not an experience you want to repeat. And I've been asked, you know, why did you carry on? Why have you carried on doing this for 27 years? And I'll tell you the answer. The answer is a girl called Juliet, a girl called Tanya, and a boy who was two years old called Paul. Mm. And that, frankly, is enough in, uh, in, in incentive for me. Um, so they, the, the authorities stopped asking questions. Uh, I was in America. Uh, they were holding me in some suspicion in any event. I came back to England and started asking questions of my own. I, I'm a lawyer. I'm very good at asking questions. I found myself, however, asking the right questions in very much the wrong places. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was up to my neck in intelligence agents. Pause. Do you want to mention Maggie's hammer and ask a question? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'd like to know what what questions those were. Like how, like what what did you find that was anomalous? What was the, what was well, the first thing that? Started? I mean, I spent some time in the book just describing Hugh as an individual, uh, and I don't mind saying this because I'm not trying to vindicate him. If you imagine your average forty year old. Um, braces and wingtips Republican politician thrusting ambition believes they know everything you've got Hugh um, I liked him because I kind of like rogues and he was a bit of a rogue well, he was a lot of a rogue actually but he was not the sort of person you naturally liked um, amazingly good father which surprised all of us but that's the sort of person he was and that's pretty much why he got involved in all of this and that is that was the for me the primary indication that something was wrong i'm i was one guy I, I wasn't able to get the autopsy report and conduct tests of my own as far as i'm concerned he was out in the in the woods in a car there was a hose connected to the exhaust pipe what did i know um but it didn't it didn't make any sense i kept saying over and over to people why why wouldn't he just run away? Okay, let's just wait. Let's see. Let's see if they find the money. They never found the money. And I'm like, well, okay, you steal $7 million. Why don't you run away with the money? Why on earth do you go out to a field and kill yourself? Because he spent the money. 
the investigators discovered there was no way he could have spent the money. It was too much money. There would have been Rolls Royces all over the place. Um, they found some indication of money invested in property in America. Why would you invest money in property in America and then go out to a field and kill yourself? Well, mm. these were the questions that were in my mind. They didn't go anywhere because where could they possibly go? Everything changed when I was leave, about to leave for America. And his father, with whom I became very close, came to me and said, and this is, what, this is when it started to get surreal, uh, that he had been approached by people of credibility. And there's, there's lots of approaching by people of credibility in Great Britain. It's still a very old-fashioned old country. Uh, and said they, these people had approached him and told him that the money had been taken out of the client's account to finance an operation to get an agent out of a foreign country, which meant very little to me until I started asking questions. But suddenly there was a whole new aspect to what was going on, and I followed up on that aspect. Um, Hugh had mentioned while he was alive that he was involved in British intelligence. Well, I think we've all been in a bar where there's somebody at the end of the bar saying, well, I used to be in the SEALs. <laughs> and uh, there's lots of things I can't tell you. He said, yeah, Harry, Harry, have another drink. Yeah, Great. Yeah. And, yeah. and I would say to you, and I found myself in some situations where strange things were going on, and I described them in the book. Um, and I'd say to you, why do you have me along when you do these things? And he said, because one day I, you might need to be in my insurance policy. Oh, yeah, Harry in the bar again. Okay, Hugh, whatever. Um, until it happened one day and I discovered that I was his insurance policy. I was the one person going around saying, did you know? And people were saying, no, we didn't. Until his father said, there's something else to this. So um, the only lead I had was a gentleman that Hugh had mentioned in Glasgow as having been involved with him in intelligence activities. Hmm. And I started what I continued to do which was turn up on people's doorstep and ask them questions. Um, I discovered very quickly that when you turn up on the doorstep of people who may be spooks and you start asking them if they're a spook, this may not be the most sensible thing in the world to do. And I go into some detail in my book about what that means, but eventually Reggie shared some things with me um, and took off from there. Um, he said that he believed that he had been involved in an operation. The details are in the book. He, he, it was an extraordinary experience speaking to people like Reggie. They are, if one believes what they say, they are involved in intelligence activity. You, they are naturally duplicitous because every good agent is a double agent. They lie to everyone and you try to try and work out what part of what they're saying is true. A lot of what people were telling me was conflicting, and I would address them on that, which sometimes got me into trouble. The, um, the first thing you don't do with a spook is turn up on their doorstep. The second thing you don't do with a spook is say, you're lying. Um, probably the third thing I never got around to was saying, I think your wife is kind of attractive too. But I never got that far. Um, but I, I would do it because I, I really, really wanted to get to the truth. The only way to do it was to see what happened. Um, what happened with Reggie is he did actually take a pot shot at me with a gun in an underground parking lot, um, which was weird. Um, but they're duplicitous, and you have to sort of work your way through what they're saying to try and get to the truth. 
Uh, Reggie, sometimes he spoke to me, sometimes he didn't. He gave me some details, which are in the book. And once I had the details, and I spent the second part of the book de dealing with this, I tried to work out, looking around the world, this was the 80s, what could be going on in the world that might fit the circumstances of what he was telling me? One of the extraordinary things is that your listeners may be saying, ah, OK, this was the 80s. What on earth has that got to do with now? People, it's got a lot to do. You would be amazed how much was going on in the 80s and mm -hmm. the 90s mm -hmm. that is really just the precursor of what is going on now. Yeah, we're probably, we were dealing, we're probably way more connected now than they were yeah. back then. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with the same countries, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Russia. They had different names back then. They were called the Soviet Union. But the same countries doing the same things, playing the same games. Very often the same people. Follow the people, follow the money from the 80s, and you will understand what's going on on today, which is why it's relevant. So I did a lot of research, um, and in the course of my research, I would, if I saw something that sounded like it might have involved Hugh or be something he could have been involved in, I would just literally write to the author or telephone them or turn up on their doorstep. And um, I did a lot of turning up on doorsteps, actually, um, and, and quiz them about it. And in the course of this, I, I wrote to the author of a well-known book from the 80s, who was an Israeli intelligence agent, and I got a call from him. Two days later, and he said, "Yes, I know your friend." Wow! I didn't realize I didn't realize I knew him, but I've read the circumstances that you describe. He was using a different name, um, and if you come and visit me in Montreal, I'll tell you all about it. And so I went to see him, and he was the one who started describing what was going on in the eighties, what started in the eighties with arms dealing. There's always been arms dealing, but he said it took off in the eighties. And it took off primarily because of the Middle East and the war between Iran and Iraq, when both countries were embargoed by the United Nations. So you weren't supposed to be selling arms to them. But Iran bought $60 billion in arms. Iraq brought $80 billion wow. in arms. And it really triggered the back door in arms dealing by the West. Lots of front door dealing, but they had to have a back door. And I, he said, your friend, unknown to you maybe, was a senior part of the arms backdoor in Great Britain. And um, as I looked into it more, cross-referenced back with other intelligence agents that I'd spoken to, I discovered that his role in the team troubleshooting for the arms industry in Great Britain involves a lot more than just arranging arms deals. Um, he probably was the closest thing to uh, the man with the hire, with the license to kill. And I shall pause at that moment. <laughs> and I'm watching you two in the studio, and you're like, okay, it's either this is amazing or this guy is loopy. <laughs> and I can't work out which one it is. You're allowed to comment. No, I wanted no, to. No, yeah, I like it. I'm trying to figure out if this is, is this is going to sway into why you live in the North Carolina <laughs> now instead of the UK. If you're on the. Oh, on well, the, he was in, I think he was the in the States before that. Right? Oh, were you? Oh. There's, there's a very interesting answer to that one. That is because the British intelligence agents told me um, at one point, as I was back in 1989, when I was back in Great Britain, pursuing people and asking questions, he said, this is not a very sensible thing for you to be doing. If you carry on doing this, it's not going to be safe for you. And I said, where? What, you mean like in Scotland? No, he said, Europe. <laughs> so um, one of the reasons I'm in America is because I am still told Europe is not a very safe place for me to be. Hmm. 
I was thinking about how how to tell that these intelligent agents are lying or not. Like you're you obviously had to sift through the disinformation and all that too. That must have been a challenge. But I guess you being a lawyer, you probably have a knack for uh, sussing people out a little bit more than the normal people. Well, Graham, that's very kind that you should say that because I keep saying I'm an ordinary person then I say I'm a lawyer. And there are a lot of people who would say, no, no, that doesn't add up at all. And I just saw you spat your drink all over the table. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I, it, I got myself into a lot of trouble I, because there was no point in not getting into trouble. I, I wanted to pursue this. I still want to pursue it. And... The reason I've written the book at this stage is because I don't have all the answers. It's, it's kind of weird. I go out there, I talk to people, engage in firsthand conversations with them. Um, and I'll come back to what you said about, you know, how do you tell whether they're lying or not? But I, I'm sitting there saying, could you please just tell me what happened to my friend Hugh? Right. And they come up with all this other stuff. And I'm, here I am 27 years into it, and I still don't know exactly what happened to Hugh. Although there is something kind of deep and mysterious about that, and I'll come back to that. But as for the rest of the stuff, how do I tell whether they're lying? If something is pretty obviously not adding up, I, I point out, I said, what you're saying just doesn't make any sense. Try again, uh, which, as I said, has its problems. Um, what I do in the book, and I try to make it a fairly fast racy read. I, I don't go for footnotes. It's not an academic tome. If you want a, a reference book about the 80s or the 90s, there are probably better 1,000 page reference books out there. This is a fast-paced read and I want to make it human and personal so I miss out a lot of the footnotes. And I, I, Sometimes I simply have to set out for the reader what I was told even when it conflicts, and say, you know, guys, you're going to have to make up your own mind on this. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I would, I would manage to wade my way through and find out the truth. For instance, with my Israeli intelligence agent, um, I had went to visit him twice and had long conversations with him on the telephone as well, which I recorded. And at one point in the second meeting I had with him in Montreal in a hotel room that was eight stories high, I can still remember how many stories it was because at one stage it was like, how long does it take you to, <laughs> to fall. drop from eight stories to hit <laughs> Three the or four ground? seconds. You know. Enough time um, to think about what you did. <laughs> yeah, you know. What, what, you know will, will, will my life actually flash before my eyes? Because, wow, 24 seconds isn't much of a life. Um, and... I, he was rambling on about, you know, your friend was on a list and your friend did this. And I said, you know, Ari, enough. You knew him. And there was a sort of deathly silence. And I was like, oops, okay, I probably shouldn't have said that. But I said, he said, what do you mean? I said, everything adds up to the fact that he's human. I, I took him through it like a lawyer would. You know, you said this and you said that. And therefore, I, it's quite obvious you knew him and you were in business with him. Why do you keep pretending you don't know him? Well, in the back of my mind, and I said it out in the book in, in some detail, is the belief that if, he was, if, if his death wasn't suicide, it is very likely that this particular Israeli agent was responsible for his death. Huh. So I was on thin ice, and I set up my rationale nevertheless. And he, he then stopped, and he smiled, and it got a little bit better, and he said... Yeah, okay, but he wasn't using that name. And then we carried on. Then it was a very different conversation. So how do you tell if they're lying or not? You go around in circles. Uh, it, it's like when I started off. 
I had a situation that didn't make sense. My friend, $7 million, missing, dead. He would have gone to Brazil. He wouldn't have killed himself. Okay, let's find out where the money is. We don't find out where the money is. There's not an answer. Okay, his father is saying something. Is somebody lying? I don't know. Let's track down somebody and see what they say. They say what they say. If what I'm being told makes sense to me, then I take it to the next stage. Hmm. Um, if it doesn't make sense, I ask questions. Is there a possibility that I have simply been lied to for the entirety of 27 years, that somebody out there has said, hey, here's a live one, let's just sell him a line. Yeah, <laughs> of course there is. I mean, and all I can say to people who buy the book is, read it, make up your own mind. I'm not selling anything, I'm just sharing what I've learned. But if this is the case, there's a lot of very unconnected people selling me exactly the same line. Yeah, exactly. And well, the line is radically different to the line the authorities are taking in Great Britain. Right. Well, if it helps, uh, pretty well anyone who has cables been being lied to for the last 30 years or so. Anybody who what? Has cable. Cable, oh, cable TV? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, right. so was Hugh, was Hugh uh, MI6 then? Is that what you're thinking? Yes. Um, I'm told that he was a senior officer in MI6 um, uh, with the rank of Brigadier General, which is fairly senior. Wow. But it's it's kind of weird um it although it sounds james bondish one of the things i discovered is none of this is james bond like at all there's no one that looks like daniel craig they don't wear tuxedos uh, they don't live in chateau in switzerland <laughs> they're ordinary people uh, generally very ordinary looking um they have mortgages to pay they have children that they raise have you ever seen the movie body of lies with um um, Russell Crowe and um, the other young, the other actor I, I really dislike intensely, <laughs> who was in Inception. Oh, uh, Leonardo. Leonardo. Yes, Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, big spy movie based in the Lebanon, and L Russell Crowe is Leonardo DiCaprio's handler. And Leonardo DiCaprio is running around the Lebanon, meeting women and getting involved in dangerous situations and oh, killing I have people. Seen that. Yeah, I remember that. And, and the whole time, Russell Crowe is sitting there, kind of like like you, Darren, with his headphones on, and he's out gardening, and he's taking his kids to school, and this is what it's like. Um, it's very, very normal, except it's not normal because people are going about normal lives but instead of talking about shopping they're talking about killing people and it's surreal and um there's generally not a structure um as my british intelligence agent contact in glasgow said uh when i said okay you say it's not safe for me but then why am i not dead and he said well intelligence is a bit of a misnomer we're not very clever and we're kind of slow and you're moving faster than we can handle. Wow. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of committees that have to make a decision before we actually take you out. And you kind of <laughs> left the you kind of left the country before we had a chance to do it. Uh, except for that one time when I was told to have a shot at you and I did and I missed. And wow. I, what about a, Obama with the drones? I mean, they should be able to take you out now with just as like, you know, the click of a button. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Graham. And I wish you a pleasant evening, too. Yeah. 
I'm going to run outside now and run around my apartment complex to try and confuse everything. Uh, no, I think so, it, I don't think it'll happen in in the U.S. If you travel to Europe, it would probably happen yeah. by the U.S. I would so not that's probably go, why we're probably not supposed to go. To I Europe. would not go to Eastern Europe. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, <laughs> If we're talking collateral damage, there's a few managers at work. I wouldn't mind being involved in the collateral damage in the <laughs> nicest possible way. Um, so, uh, yes, right, question time. So is there a uh, – is the book just a cultivation of the last 27 years, or is uh, is there a reason for the timing in the current uh, – you know, uh, is there a, a – um I guess because the timing really couldn't be better. Like we've got all these different well, platforms out. I mean, I, I wonder if you aren't going to see kind of a surge and maybe some some information or, you know, find some new avenues. Well, or have you... Darren, yeah, you, you've hit on it, Darren. Um, the timing is entirely coincidental. Um, the book falls into three parts. There's the going out and asking questions and finding myself knee-deep in rather strange adventure. There's the researching and the investigating and trying to set it in context and then there's going back and putting what i found to certain authority figures in great britain and america which is itself hilariously wow. unusual in terms of some of the responses i got from the british two british prime ministers with with whom i dealt with directly um <laughs> but i got as far as i could because i'm one guy i i don't i i I don't have the. I'm not a rich person. I used to be a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer now. I left the rat race 20 years ago. I, I write music and and blog and work in a grocery co-op and live a much more relaxed life. I don't have money. I don't have um, any resources at my disposal. I've got as far as I can get. So, 10 years ago, I decided it was time to start writing the book and trying to get it published, and find a very nice publisher in Oregon who finally agreed. Um, and I'm primarily putting the book out there now because it is, as you say, a chronicle of the last 27 years. And it's saying to the world, OK, this is as far as I can go. Um, in the past, I have approached people directly and have had some interesting responses from people who say, oh, yeah, I know about this. This is now a platform which says if there's anybody out there who knows anything about any part of this, if there's a name you see, if there's circumstances you you recognize, please contact me um, or if you see something going on, see something in this book, and it's like, I know that guy. He lives down the street. Do something yourself. And if there's a moral to this book, aside from finding out the truth for my friend's family, it is that as I've gone through my life, I've been struck by how increasingly in this globalized world, as individuals, we, we are losing control over our own destiny. I don't care about the destiny of Australia or the destiny of China. I was talking earlier about my mates at work who are having kids. I care about my friends being able to wake up in the morning, go to work, go shopping, go to the movies, come home, and feel that the things they've had contact with are things that they can control in some way, that they have some ability to design their own destiny. Yeah. And, it, and increasingly, I think people look out there particularly after something like the Republican debate this evening, and they just throw their hands up in the air and they say, I have no opportunity to design anything because somebody else somewhere else is controlling what I'm doing. What can I do? And if my book is anything, it's the chronicle of what one person did try and do and is still trying to do. Right. And if we as individuals take an interest and get engaged. Okay, you may not end up having the James Bond adventure I did. You may not uncover the things I did. But if there's a, an energy plant outside of your town that's doing the wrong thing, 
if your school board has got an admissions policy which sucks, don't just accept it. Do something about it. Because if we can't achieve anything on our own individually, if we all try and do something, we become an army of activists and then maybe we can achieve something. And that's that's the moral. That's a little moral pitch for what my book Maggie's Hammer is about. But basically, yes, Darren, you're right. I am now getting trying to get what I've got so far out there to see if there's anybody who can help me take it further. I like that. It kind of boils down to my favorite little saying: "Be the change." Right? Yeah. It always can boil yeah. down to that in some yeah. fucked up roundabout way. Did you yeah. Did you ever struggle with or or have to reconcile? learning about him being like let's say an mi6 and doing backdoor arms deals and stuff like that uh you know with with sort of like he almost like okay uh, he, he maybe not deserved it but he put himself there at risk or no I, I, right in the middle right in the middle there you you got it and 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 having uh, thank you for rambling a little bit you did we're all <laughs> rambling a little bit but we get there right in the middle of there you reminded me of something because i was going to say Yes, I have, but I can't quite pinpoint it. Yeah, I can tell you exactly when. 1997, um, I got angry, and I nearly dropped it. I nearly said, fuck you. You know? Yeah. Screw yeah, you. Yeah. Um, you were this nasty piece of work. You had three kids. They were 11, 8, and 2. And you had no damn business getting involved in this shit, if you don't mind the language. You had no business doing this. You, you knew it was dangerous. You got in over your head. You got involved in it, maybe because there were, and we'll come to this, uh, there were higher purposes behind it. It wasn't right, just right. about making money. Maybe you just got involved in it because it was exciting and you were in a boring moment in your life. Maybe this was your midlife crisis. Whatever it was, you had no business doing this. And besides which, you really were a filthy piece of work. <laughs> Why bother? Um... What was my thinking after that? Eh, the kids, who aren't kids anymore, by the way. Um, and then I, be I think my anger with him was less than my anger with what I was discovering. And I think between still wanting to find out the truth for his kids and doing something about what I was discovering. But yeah, there was a moment where I wondered. Yeah, uh, yeah. Where it was difficult discovering what I discovered about him. Right. Yeah, I guess the kids are all adults now. How do they, uh, are they all on board with... Uh... It's, it's kind of a, a hands-off situation. Um, after his death, of course, I mean, again, being human, put yourself in the same situation. There's, there's two mothers. <laughs> there was a wife and a mistress, and the wife had two kids and the mistress had one. But here you've got two women in their 30s with young kids stunned by what happened. Um, at first, I didn't know any of this. It was just a stunning situation. But from the very beginning, the person I dealt with was his father. First of all, just dealing with the aftermath of his death. And then after he told me about the other stuff, dealing with where that went. And he and I decided fairly early on, he said, You're, you, you really are going to pursue this. He said, he said, my advice to you is, Jeff, just go off, start a new life. I said, Nah, ain't as easy as that. I'm like their favorite uncle. Can't do that. And he said, okay. And I said, look, if, you, if you're asking me to stop, I'll stop. And he said, no. You do what you need to do. His, his attitude changed from one of gentle disbelief to complete support because of some bits and pieces that he discovered. He was an interesting mm. individual in his own regard. Mm. Um, but he, he supported me he threw out, but he said, look, 
understand something, the, the two mothers and the kids are trying to get on with their lives. Um, if we do this, it's going to have to be separate. You can't be bothering them the whole time. And I knew that. And there were many, I mean, you're asking if there were moments when I had doubts about what I was doing. The primary uh, problem I've had throughout all of this is whether I'm doing more damage than good. And that is a conversation I last had with him in 2005. He died in 2006. And he was not well. That's why I had the conversation. And he said, what you are doing is right. Um, I have files on what you're doing, which I will give to the mothers when I die. And those files will be available for the children if they want to know. Um, but you carry on doing what you're doing. You have my support. But am I in touch with the children themselves? I would say no, by agreement. Although... I think one of them anonymously contacted me on Facebook, which is almost surreal, um, a strange name. And she said, uh, you knew my grandmother and I know what you're doing and thank you, oh, which, wow. which was, yeah, um, which was a moment you can imagine, you know, it's, mm-hmm. ah. let's pull it, let's pull it up to the higher level a bit here and what did you find out about um, the U.S. and the U.K. specifically about how they're connected? And, and the reason I, I kind of, uh, I kind of hear on one of these podcasts that we listen to, and they talk a bit about the U.K. right now being a testing ground for the surveillance state type of thing. Like it seems like they've been taking surveillance and some of that, um, some of that. Uh, I don't know what do you want to call it, political spying or whatever, to another level. And it, and it seems like yeah. America's got them doing that um, as a it's- testing ground. Um, let, let me let me tell you where I where I start. I'm just going to quickly mention the name of the book again. The book's called Maggie's Hammer. Oh, by the way, yeah. If anyone's wondering how to get hold of it, it's very simple. <laughs> Google Maggie's Hammer, and um, you'll find it because there's nothing out there called Maggie's Hammer. I'm Maggie's sorry Hammer. about that. I'm sorry about that really blunt little pitch there, but yeah, you've got to get that in there somewhere, free. and it'll be in the show notes as well for people. Yeah. Um. Well, also on Amazon. I'll tell you where it started. I mean, I've I, so I've got as far as the Israeli intelligence agent. He's telling me all about these arms deals, and he's telling me about Mark, Margaret Thatcher's son being an important part of the pipeline, even though he's completely stupid. But the money laundering pipeline was set up by Hugh, who wasn't stupid. And I, I'm asking one of those questions. I'm saying, Ari, come on. Whatever you think of her politics, here is a woman who was elected as prime minister three times in a row. Why on earth would she be getting kickbacks from arms deals? What's it got to do with anything? And he said, OK, it's not black and white, Jeff. It's gray. You need to understand this. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase Ari because it was Ari and some other people, too. There was a lot of stuff going on in the 80s uh, in terms of clandestine foreign policy. It had to be clandestine because there were problems like the United Nations embargo on Iran and Iraq. Both America and Great Britain, which have always been very close, wanted certain outcomes around the world. They wanted the Soviet Union to collapse. They wanted um, a certain outcome with Nicaragua. They wanted a certain outcome between Iran and Iraq in that war. But they couldn't do anything openly about it because it had because they were embargoed from doing it. So it was all clandestine. And it wasn't just a question of bringing pressure to bear on people. It required money and it required arms. And those arms had to be sold by the back door. So this huge arms selling operation that was going on around the world and also involved the Israelis wasn't just about selling 
arms. It was about cementing certain foreign policy objectives. And I said, okay, so I've got that. So you're telling me Margaret Thatcher was was receiving kickbacks, which apparently totaled some 300 million pounds in order to let Iraq win the war. Now, there you go, Jeff, being black and white again. It wasn't as black and white. Okay, then what was it? There was the higher purpose to one side, mm-hmm. but then at the same time, quite nakedly, every single major intelligence agency in the West discovered there was a shitload of money to be made from selling arms. And he said, what do you think? We're angels? We're not going to try and get some of that money? Of course we did. He said, I made money. Your friend made money. Everybody made money. And if anybody says they do not making money, they're lying. And if, there's no, and if you haven't proved it yet, it's just because you haven't found the money trail. He said, case in point, we weren't able, we, the Israelis, tried to nail Margaret Thatcher in the 80s with this kind of sleaze because we wanted to discredit her because we felt that she and her government were too pro-Arab. We looked hard. We knew that there was arms dealing going on that was leading to arms kickbacks to senior conservative politicians, but we couldn't prove it because we couldn't find the money trail. Here we are, he said, in 1994, you bring me this name, I've now just discovered the money trail. The money trail was your friend, but we had no idea it was your friend because he was unknown. And he said, that's why they chose him, because he wasn't on the radar, had the skills, but wasn't on the radar. So there was this higher purpose to one side, but there was also just, it was also just about making money. You specifically mentioned the relationship between Great Britain and America, which goes back to the Second World War, um, when they were allied in the fight against Germany. And it's pretty much continued since then. I mean, people talk about the special relationship. The bottom line is there's never really been any great disagreement between Britain and America on very much of anything. So it's pretty safe to make long-term plans between them. Mm. And very specifically, there's something called, and Darren may know this, the U- it's called the UK-US agreement. And it is a supposedly secret agreement, but not very secret at all, which involves all sorts of joint cooperation on matters military and intelligence. Mm. And very specifically, we're talking about surveillance. It's been known for some time, long before Edward Snowden and Wikipedia, that in America, the NSA is not supposed to snoop on American citizens. And in Great Britain, the equivalent GCHQ is not supposed to snoop on British citizens. Well, they don't. In Great Britain, the NSA snoops on British citizens (laughs) through American army bases. And in America, the British snoop on Americans from bases in Canada. That's one example um, of what goes on. Now, I know that because I read it out of a book. So I take it with a pinch of salt. It may be true. It may not. The one thing I know about because I was told about it firsthand is that, um, and this took a while to discover, and I had to go through several sources till I got it because I'm still looking for this higher purpose. Okay, I've got arms deals. What was this larger, wider foreign policy you people keep talking about? And they said, okay, what happened was this. In the 80s, Margaret Thatcher came to power. The country was pretty much bankrupt in every department. Um, We were the Greece of our day. Um, Margaret Thatcher set about rebuilding British industry by focusing on the arms industry, which is when the arms industry grew. We became the number five arms exporter in the world and one in five people in Great Britain now working in association with the arms industry. But the military and the intelligence services were also short of funds. Um, 
And what Margaret Thatcher did in the 80s was literally pimp out Britain's military and intelligence services to the Americans. Hmm. And so you find that, for example, in the Lebanon, um, where the Americans had peacekeepers and the Marines, um, they couldn't engage in military activity, but the British could. So the British were going around involved in assassinations of Islamic militants who'd been responsible for bombing the Marine barracks in the Lebanon. In Afghanistan, the CIA armed the Mujahideen, but they couldn't cross the border into Afghanistan because of um, congressional oversight. But the British could. So it was the British who um, went into Afghanistan with the Mujahideen and the weaponry and helped set it up and was involved in killing Soviets. And that's the 80s. So what does it have to do with now? That arrangement has continued for the last 30 years. Um, many people wonder why Tony Blair, an allegedly left-wing British prime minister, found himself invading Iraq with George Bush, a right-wing president. And the answer is that same understanding that was created in the 80s. Um, in the last couple of weeks, um, I read about um, an article by Seymour Hirsch, who is a reasonably well-known American investigative journalist who also figures in my book. Um, and he was writing about how the British were secretly arming al-Nusra, which is one of the opposition groups in Syria, not ISIS. Um, but they were secretly arming that group because the Americans wanted to, but couldn't because of congressional oversight. Mm. Uh, two weeks ago, Great Britain became involved in its first drone attacks. Up until now, it had been all American drone attacks. And those drone attacks were targeted against British jihadis. Why? Because um, Britain has a very large Muslim community, mm -hmm. which is very radicalized. Um, a lot of the um, militant Islamic activity that takes place around the world that isn't undertaken by Arabians is undertaken by British Muslims. Um, most people know that the beheadings have been undertaken by somebody called Jihadi John, who is a British citizen. And um, the Americans knew they couldn't target British jihadis, again, because of British congressional oversight. So two weeks ago, the British started engaging in drone attacks. Now, I can tell you, the British, aren't, the British government isn't engaging in drone attacks because the British people want them to. They're doing so because the Americans have asked them to, because of this understanding that dates back to the 80s. And you, Darren, were saying about, why well, am I bringing my book out now because the circumstances are propitious? Actually, the circumstances are entirely um, coincidental. It, it, it's, it's unfortunate. I don't take delight in people dying or in armed conflict of any sort, but it's, it's kind of weird in a surreal sort of mystical way that all of the issues that are in my book have become alive again in the past two years. Russia has started projecting its military activity has increased you know in, in Syria with ISIS yeah. um, all these things which I could say wow this is really just a complete projection of what was going on in the 80s have remarkably come alive in the last two years and although it's a rather Grim thing to say. I hope you noticed the pun there. Okay. All right. Well, ignore that. Although it's a rather grim thing to say, if I could, if I could have managed world events to be a platform for my book, I couldn't have managed it better. But 
you know, that's a rather that's a rather unfortunate way of looking at things. So yes, I mean, there's a lot going on at the moment that is covered by matters in my book. I got to ask because I mean, this is all right during the time of the Iran Contras and uh, all that sort of stuff. Like, did uh, did you notice much overlap in your research with the the war on drugs and uh, you know that the uh, United States government was obviously bringing drugs into America at least? And I I wonder if the same thing wasn't going on in the UK. No, I, to be honest, Darren, no, I didn't discover any overlap at all. Um, I will say that as part of my research, and if you if you leaf to the end of the book, you will find about 350 books that I had to read, and I hate, hate reading. Um, but at least I read very quickly because I was looking for anything that might, um, any circumstances that might support what was going on. And I went off into weird and wonderful places. Um, I started reading all about JFK, because if you, if you extrapolate forward from JFK, same people, same sort of circumstances going on through Watergate, Vietnam, um, Iran-Contra, and so on. So even though you may not be dealing with the same people, you're understanding the same sort of things that are going on. Um, and and I, I can only say this, that at one stage I read quite heavily about um, the drug connection in America. And... It's kind of interesting what you're saying, because now, if you ask most average Americans, do you think that there was a connection between drugs coming into America and money going down to the Contras? They'd say, yeah, yeah, come on, <laughs> duh, hello. But back then, it was like, That was the wow, craziest conspiracy, conspiracy ever, yeah. Conspiracy, this guy sees UFOs in his sleep. But now it's accepted as, as second nature. Um, but at the time, yeah, I was looking at all this drug stuff and I was scratching my head saying, does no one see the obvious connection here? I mean, like, the mafia has networks for moving money and drugs from, be it Italy or wherever, through Latin America into America, into Los Angeles and stuff out. Who would, I mean, the CIA have used the mafia for so many other things. Why wouldn't they be using them or something similar like Iran country? Why wouldn't they? So I was looking at this, and all I can say is, and again, it's, a, it, it's not a dead end. It's a lead that I've never been able to find an end to. Two people, one of whom was a former law partner of Hughes, one of whom was a rather shady contact. I don't know if he was intelligence or not, said they had proof that Hugh, when Hugh died, there was money on him, $3 million in cash, and that it all had to do with um, arms deals being organized with the Americans through Ireland. Now, I have never heard anything since. I've never found anything since. But then there's a lot of money that I've had told to me by the law society, um, the progeny of which no one's ever been able to, to discover. There's a lot of unanswered things out there, a lot of activity that Hugh was involved in, to which I still don't have the answer. I mean, I have general knowledge about arms activity. I have specifics about one arms deal, but this was activity that took, took place over four years. There's a lot I don't know about yet. Huh. Yet. So are you still, uh, are you still on the hunt? Ah. <sighs> Well, you see, the answer I ought to give is, yes, I am. I'm absolutely dead 
dedicated to this, and I need you to buy the book to help finance this. And the name of the to book, a, again, is Maggie's Hammer. To a certain extent, yes. Um, I have provided enough information for his family to have some sense of what went on. A sense. Um, there is a part of me which would still like to find the whole truth. There is a part of me that would like still to question, particularly the Israeli intelligence officer. If I, if I make enough money, I would like to take off two years and go and have some serious conversations with the Israeli intelligence officer about some leads that we didn't really track down. But that's about the size of it. You know, guys, I'm 59 years old. Um, I'm also producing an EP of my own music, and I would like to spend the next 10 or 15 years of my life standing up at spring breaks and just singing my songs. <laughs> um, so, yes, I mean, to some extent, there is stuff I would like to do, and I need to sell the book to do it. But on the other hand, I think I'm a reasonably together guy now, and there's some other things I'd like to do with my life. Well, maybe you should come on the show before you go over there and talk to a re- Israeli intelligence and never come back. Uh, thanks, Darren. So what, I'm, what I'm hearing is this is the show that Jeff Gilson spoke to last <laughs> before he was discovered, dismembered uh, in Eastern Europe. Oh, I've got to tell you a funny story about Eastern Europe. You're going to laugh out of this. Um, I have several blogs, one of which is a blog to do with my co-op. And the feed will tell you where the interest is coming from. And most of the interest in my blog, uh, my co-op blog, comes from America, naturally, you know, it's an American cop, except about a year ago, I suddenly developed an interest in the Ukraine. And so on the map, there would be big color America and this little tiny big color Ukraine. And I was like, why on earth do I appeal to people in the Ukraine? And I have this visual image of um, the Russian nationalists and their opponents in the Ukraine every morning as they get up and and arm the barricade, say, I... Hey, hang on, before you start shooting, have you read Jeff's blog today? What about that co-op manager, eh? Is he a jerk or what? And I have no idea why I I, am so popular in the Ukraine. I just hope that I'm popular on both sides. But, yeah. So, yes, I will come on the show before I go and see Harry. It's got to have something to do with the book, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I I don't know. You know, whatever it is, they... Uh, no one's ever written to me, but they seem to be very interested in it. So, I mean, you've been doing this for 27 years, kind of over over the birth of the internet. How much of a role did, you know, technology coming out play as you were researching it? Um, well, a lot. Um, I mean, I, I've been talking about how I turn up on people's doorsteps. I don't have to turn up on people's doorsteps anymore. I can tweet them, <laughs> which is just as annoying, but less dangerous. So, um, yeah, I, the technology is, is wild. I mean, I, I joke about my blog. Um, I first got onto blogs back in 2006 in the early days. And this was before Facebook and Twitter. And, and as you will probably know, it's all about trying to get traffic and it was a pain now it's it's a whole new world I and mean, as i speak to you guys and i'm doing other radio shows as well in america i'm running my own twitter campaign in great britain uh just tweeting politicians and journalists and letting them know about the book this is something i couldn't have done 20 years ago and i'm really hopeful that by just getting it out there 
I might be able to achieve in terms of somebody say, hey, whoa, I know something about this. I, I recognize these circumstances. I'm really hopeful that that may happen um, through modern technology. It hasn't happened yet, but I have to do a lot less tramping around the streets and taking airplane trips and so on than I used to. So technology, it's a whole new world. But the flip side of that is trolls. I was just yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that the all the paid trolls now too like people paid to to comment nasty comments or or you know disinformation that type of thing like how I don't know I keep getting this sense that uh that we're in tr we're in for trouble because there's so many people just paid all day long just trolling on the internet. I didn't know that people are paid to do that. It's it's contested, I think. I don't think <laughs> No, it's pretty much proven that there's people that are paid to do it. Look, guys, I gotta tell you, I I am I am really proud. Um I started doing these radio interviews about like two, three weeks ago. Oh wow. And and so I mean you, you read N MSNBC and of course you read the you read the article about Trump or whatever it is, and then you go down to the comments. Yeah. So that you can read the soap opera. Right. You know. Richie saying, oh, Vanessa, there you go again, you silly cow, and all this sort of stuff. And I got trolls arguing on one of my YouTubes. I am so proud. <laughs> they, I mean, they, they, they descended on my interview, and it was like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, Vanessa, there you go again. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Richie and Vanessa are arguing on my YouTube. I, <laughs> I have made it. Oh my god! Hey, that's where the trolls live on YouTube. Yeah, I know. YouTube I know. is troll central. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, sometimes I like, they're pretty heartless over there oh, too. Oh, like, yeah. I wish you were dead. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and my 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 publisher said, Jeff, whatever you do, do not feed the trolls. <laughs> and it's so difficult. Do not engage. Oh, oh, it's really. I mean, it's, it's like some of the best comments. Like um, somebody who said. This was an awful interview. It was just clearly a plug for a book. And I wanted to write and say, I'm sorry, what was the giveaway? Would that be the picture of me holding the book? <laughs> and my publisher is like, no, don't do that. Okay, okay. That's it. I like to be super polite to the trolls. Be like, oh, thanks, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks yeah, for, listening. Thanks yeah. for the feedback. Yeah. yeah uh, yes, I know. So, so I, I'm, 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 I've been a very good boy. I haven't engaged so I can see what you mean now about the eighties. I, I grew up in the eighties and, and uh, it seems to me like stuff started to shift then as well. We're talking about technology and, and arms deals and stuff like that. And, and the globalization. globalization. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. a bit of a synchronicity. Oh, no, there. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's, and then, and then people caught on to the opportunity there. It seems to me like the age the intelligence agencies and, and this, this war machine, and then it seems to get a lot worse, and now it's just, who, you know, fuck, who knows where we're at right now. But what do you think um, about the future of this? Like, is there is there hope for the future? Is the mil military-industrial complex? Like, that's kind of the word I like to I, use because it's... it's I, I don't know. It's not, I mean, um, it's... It, it, it crosses political... I mean, there's about six answers in my head. I'll try and sort them out. Um, after... In 2009, 2010, no, I guess it was more like 2011, Occupy hit the streets in America. I'm, I'm not an anarchist. I wasn't a natural supporter of Occupy Wall Street, not because I didn't necessarily agree with what they did, but because I have a problem with people who claim they're achieving things that they're not. 
and the Occupy Wall Street people were saying, we're bringing down the banks. I said, no, you're not. Well, we're stopping the CEOs getting to their offices. No, you're not. Because when you stop the limousine, they'll simply come in by helicopter. If you want to do something, do something. And I remember argue. I, I went to some Occupy meetings where I live, which is Chapel Hill. And we had an encampment. And Chapel Hill's a very progressive town, so they, they didn't try and get rid of the encampment. They just sort of encouraged it, and it was nice. And I went and, went and took part in some general assemblies. And I argued with people. They were talking about Occupy Wall Street. And I said, look, what are you trying to do? Have a go at the banks. Actually, I, I agree. The banks crashed the economy. We should not have bailed out the banks. I get that. They should have been allowed to go where they went. And I get that. I'm not quite sure what comes next. Let's talk about what comes next. But if you want to have a go at the banks, forget New York. Um, why don't we go to the Bank of America branch down the street and pick at that? Because, you know, it's human. You can stand there with a sign and say, hey, Barbara, you are foreclosing on Harold. Do you think that's such a good idea? And it becomes personal. And eventually Barbara complains to her manager that she doesn't like the world being told that she's foreclosing on Harold. It's her bank that's doing it, but she's a part of it. And could she please stop doing that? The manager complains up the line and suddenly the CEO has got a thousand complaints in his inbox saying our, our employees are being harassed by people around the country. That's how individuals make a difference. But you don't make a difference by making claims about New York, which simply aren't true. So I had a problem with Occupy, but I, I took part in Occupy um, because I wanted to engage in a conversation about what we could do. And where I ended up, and it's why I work, continue to work in a co-op, is this. There is actually not a lot that we can do about the military-industrial complex. There's not much we can do about rich people or ambitious people or spies who lie because they were born that way and they will find a way to do it whatever we do. Um, the thing to do is, one, expose them. And to some extent, I hope my book does that in a personal way. And two, find a way to design a life that's got nothing to do with them. And the great thing about our co-op is we keep the profits. We provide, we sell goods to our customers who will tell us what it is they want to buy as much as possible. We buy locally. We grow their stuff ourselves, whatever it may be. And we have nothing to do with bank finance we have nothing to do with spies. We have nothing to do with the military industrial complex. It may come to visit itself on some of our employees if their kids get drafted into a war in the future. But between exposure and designing a life that's separate to what the rich people do, that's the future. I don't think we can do anything about um, uh, changing people who are going to find a way to do what they do, whatever happens. Wow. Which, which is like a bit that. of a downer, really, isn't yeah, it? No, that's good. No, I like it. No, I like that because part of me, I, I, get, I struggle with it because part of me thinks that we're doomed to big pharma, the military industrial complex, and the banks. Like, those are the big three things that make me feel really disappointed. And then, yeah. but then I see what we're doing here and, we're, and the, the open platforms that we have and the culture mm -hmm. is shifting. And from Occupy till now, from the 80s till now, to, to recognizing the conspiracies that you talked about like a decade ago were crazy. Now they're just, you know, yep. they're uh, talking everybody's kitchen. So I, I struggle with it going back and forth. And I, sometimes I just desire the co the co-op life, right? Like just breaking apart. Like it's almost like I could see myself one day doing the, the uh, even the more extreme, like going off the grid kind of thing. Like there's something that mm -hmm. attractive about just, letting it all go and just going off the grid and living a simple life. <clears throat> I, I think I think the most uh, 
bemusing rather than amusing thing that happened to me in the last couple of months was a friend of mine in the co-op who is an anarchist. And we <laughs> argued merrily the whole time. And he came to me one day and we're both of us going through a journey of discovery. And he said, you know, here's a weird thing. I find myself beginning to support the Second Amendment. And I said, oh, geez, why? And he said, look, I don't trust government anymore. There are policemen out there. I don't trust anymore. Mm. And I and and for the you know, as for those people in the bunkers out in Iowa or in Michigan, yeah, they're crackpots. But you know something, Jeff? They're off the grid. They found a way to be off the grid. And maybe what I need to do is go and set up an anarchist encampment the other side of the river from them. So because we're kind of on the same wavelength, although well, politics are completely different. And I know it's kind of silly and it's funny and it would be an amazing sitcom. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's strange how things can suddenly change. And in Great Britain, uh, the Labour Party has just elected a leader nobody expected them to elect. In America, even though their politics are wildly different, the three leading candidates in the Republican primary are Donald Trump, Ben Carlson, and uh, Carly Fiorina, um, who have nothing to do with the political establishment. And you have Bernie Sanders uh, for the Democrats. And just when you think it can't get worse, and where the worst enemy is apathy, suddenly people kick back and say, enough is enough. And you find that when enough people kick back together, they can actually achieve something. Now, Will, would Bernie Sanders make a great president or Donald Trump or Jeremy Corbyn a great prime minister? I don't know. But what's much more important is I think people have gotten caged and are saying enough. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it makes a difference who's going to be in that behind that desk, really, to be honest with you. But it is interesting how Canada's got more of a labor. People are sort of going down that labor party route as well. Like we don't really touch on politics that much. I don't really know. No, no. What I'm talking I mean, about, I, but yeah. I think people are sick of. I think people are just seeing that this runaway capitalism kind of thing is just not. It's not really working. Yeah, I, I think it's it's people saying. Um, I don't know what the numbers are, and the politics doesn't really matter. Um, it's it's it's. I think it's people saying we've had enough. Yeah, we want to do something. Um, so I, I think between design, you know, trying to just design a life that leaves the rich people alone, um, and exposing what one can as an individual and group that's yeah with those things we can do hmm. well said yeah well um we'd like to really thank you for coming on the show um before we before we wrap it up if there's anything else you want to get out there and of course where our listeners can track you you mentioned you were on the twitter uh, what's your what's mm -hmm. your handle there my handle there is jeff gilson and that's the british jeff everybody that's g-o-f-f -F <laughs> gilson g-off and um, you can find the book. Just go to maggieshammer.com. Um, all I would say, I think, in closing is, and thank you guys very much for having me on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Is um, this is not your grandfather's expose, uh, some boring, long, thousand-page um, tome reference book. I didn't, set, I didn't set out to find an expose. I didn't set out to have an adventure. I just set out to try and find out some answers about my friend and it led to an adventure and it led to some sort of understanding about what is happening in the world with arms sales and so on. Um, but it's a reasonably fast paced read. 
you're going to have to read it and make up your own mind about what I say. But if in reading it, you see anything out there that rings a bell, please contact me. I'm still trying to find out the answers. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. We'll link to all that in the show notes. And yeah, the book uh, is an ex- it should be an exciting read. It's almost like a novel, eh? It's like a thriller. Well, thank you. So yeah, we encourage everyone to pick up the book. Dave in the chat room already says that he'll be picking up the book. So Excellent. Mm. And if there's any people out there that want to turn it into a movie, then... Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. So right, movie, I'll leave you with this funny story. My British intelligence agent, I... He sort of gone off, 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 off the grid. He said, I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Too dangerous. To, I, I, I told you what I can tell you. But years later, there was a specific thing I wanted to confirm with him, which is whether or not he had been trained to be an assassin. And it was pretty important. So I contacted him, and there was a kind of a um, very surreal conversation where he confirmed that this, he had been trained. And as often would happen in these surreal conversations, we moved on to lighter matters just to lighten the mood. And I mentioned the fact that I was writing a book. He said, oh, so is there going to be a movie? And I said, Reggie, you know, come on, man. We're supposed to be having a serious conversation. He said, well, look, if there's going to be a movie, do I get to choose who plays me? Oh, I said, come <laughs> on. Is it, he said, I want to be played by Roger Moore. And oh, I said, Is that the he, original James Bond? No. The original, well, I mean, I'm not even sure if he's still alive. We might have moved on a bit since then. But there I was in the mountains of North Georgia trying to have a serious conversation with a British intelligence agent who only wanted to talk about who was going to portray him in the movie. So hopefully there will be a movie. Yeah, maybe it'll be we're Mission see. Impossible 6. Yeah, we're trying to get Graham into a movie too. So no, if you need someone to get shot or hit by a truck or. <laughs> just, just throw them. I mean, you know. Yeah, I'll just play Hugh sitting in my car for the scene with the, you know, the hose in the window. Yeah. yeah. All right, buddy. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you very both both very much. Um, you have a nice evening now. All right. You too. Thanks, Take care. Jeff. back to the show that was our chat with jeffrey gilson that was, that was a fun out. one yeah he's a fun guy yeah I, I admire i admire that people that can do that go from like being a lawyer and now he's uh you know like he's just sort of simplified everything doesn't really care about the material S- stuff as much as just having fun doing his you know grocery store managing or whatever he's whatever he calls it the co-op the co-op you know still, like it just like yeah. i kind of sometimes i just wish that Maybe I should just go on simplify fuck everything. It, I quit. I'm just going to move just, back to the island and fucking sell plums. Yeah, just live simple. We should just there's, move there's to BC and grow dope, man. We could podcast, grow dope. Nah, I don't want to do that. We could get in now 
And we could be like the fucking John players of legal marijuana. It's coming. Trudeau just said today. I want to see what the, the other candidates are going to say in response to Trudeau coming out and saying, "We're uh, if he's if he's elected, it'll be legal within two years." Wow, that's he a- said it could go. It was on my my new thing here. Oh, where'd it go? Trudeau said legalization would happen anywhere from a month to a year or two. Hmm. So you want to get in with the ground up, so to speak? Yeah, but there's too many. We'll just get killed. Yeah. It's pretty well established, and I'm sure those people are just going to want to go legal. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I don't think I want to get involved in all that. No, probably not. It's fun to think about, Next thing you know, Jeffrey Gilson will be coming over investigating our, our murder. I think he'd do it too. Yeah. He'd be the man I'd want on the job. Yeah. He'd be like a pit bull. Yeah. Never he'd be like up. showing up at do- gangster doors. Just yeah. duck, 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 duck. Yeah. Hello? Have you seen Graham Dunlop? <laughs> Have you seen Graham? <laughs> I should have done my English accent. <laughs> Have you seen Graham Dunlop? <laughs> <laughs> Reckon he's around here somewhere. <laughs> that was good. Let's hear yours. Uh-uh. You've never done one. I have to be quoting. I, I have to be like quoting Monty Python or something like that. You see, How'd you know he's a king? You see, Graham Dunlop, governor, because he hasn't got shit all over him. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, no, that must have been a pretty hairy time for him. Yeah, no doubt. Well, the book reads like a novel. We encourage you guys to pick it up. And uh, yeah, I wish I would have asked him about the MI six uh, paying people to make crop circles. The real crop circle makers. We should ask him about that because he was in England, right? We should ask Matt him about Williams. That. Well, everyone knows everyone in England, so no, they don't. Oh. It's a bigger place than you think. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to say that about someone else, like someone says about us. Yeah, but you must know Bill. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. Thanks for, for coming on, Jeff. Thanks for coming on, Jeff, and. Uh, we appreciate it. As always, guys, head over to grabamerica.ca slash support. Check out all the different options there on how to support the show. Keep us ad sponsor affiliate free without any paywalls. Uh, we give it to you for free. You decide what you want to pay and uh, help us heat this fucker for the winter because it's getting a little colder every episode. Yeah, every week. <laughs> okay, guys, thanks for listening. Spam Gram, review the show, tell your friends. Tune in next week.
Free admission, hustlers, dealers, and killers come on swift. 